0: Hello and welcome to another edition of Brussels sprouts. I'm Andrea Kendall-Taylor.
1: I'm Jim Townsend.
0: And we're so glad you can join us. Uh, 30 years after the collapse of the Soviet Union, tensions between Russia and the West are flaring once again with the ongoing Russian military buildup along the Ukrainian border that's leading to concerns about a new offensive in the coming months. One of the Kremlin's key demands is for NATO to declare that it will not offer membership in the alliance to Ukraine. Within this context, some have argued that the origin of these unresolved tensions lies in the years after the fall of the Berlin Wall, when NATO expanded its territory to Eastern Europe, altering the geopolitical balance between the United States and Russia. To discuss this, we are very pleased to welcome Mary Sarati to the podcast to discuss her new excellent book, Not One Inch, America, Russia, and the Making of Post-Cold War Steel Meat. Uh, If you um, want a teaser for that, uh, she also had an excellent essay in the most recent uh, version of Foreign Affairs, which teases that argument, but really highly recommend the book um, to anyone who is interested in these topics. So, Mary, welcome.
2: Thank you. Great to be here. As a regular listener, it's a thrill to actually be on the show myself.
0: Um, Just by, we as we always do, a little bit of background on Mary. Um, Mary is an expert in the history of international relations and the inaugural holder of the Kravis Chair at Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies, SAIS, in Washington, DC. In addition to Not One Inch, she is the author of numerous other works, including The Collapse, The Accidental Opening of the Berlin Wall, and 1989, The Struggle to Create Post-Cold War Europe. Her books have been named Economist and Financial Times Books of the Year, along with receiving other awards and commendations. So we're so excited. I can't think of a better time to be having this conversation. Um, maybe just to set the stage, you know, assuming that Brussels sprouts readers have not yet read your excellent book, uh, if you could just kind of lay out the general argument. Um, you know how. It, Yeah, let's start there. What is the general kind of premise of the book? Uh, And then we can use that as a jumping off point.
2: Sure. Let me actually answer your question two ways. So let me first answer it in a very general big picture sense and then in a more specific detailed sense. So uh, in the general big picture sense, I'd like to give you an answer that uh, comes out of an experience I had during the pandemic. So during the pandemic, one of my other books that you were kind enough to mention, The Collapse, the accidental opening of the Berlin Wall, was actually optioned for production as a limited TV series along the lines of something like Chernobyl, right? Now, uh, don't hold your breath because apparently this means that instead of a one in a million chance of being on TV, I have a one in a thousand chance of being on TV. Uh, but what it does mean is that I, I had one of the fun things that happened you know, while I was in lockdown was dealing with uh, TV producers and a screenwriter. Uh, because it would be a lightly fictionalized account. And the reason I mention this is that the screenwriter uh, was very interesting to me as an author because this was someone who lives entirely from his writing. If he doesn't sell his writing, he doesn't eat, right? If my book doesn't sell, I hope it does, but if it doesn't sell, I, I'm a professor, right? I can still eat. But he has to sell his writing. And he said, you know, if you're trying to introduce people that you're writing, he said, don't start with all the details start with the emotional core of why you're telling this story. And I thought, wow, I've never done that as an academic. And I thought, what's the emotional core, totally apart from all the details. And I thought about it for a while, and I came up with the following image, and I had this in my head while I was writing. And the image is the following. Imagine you've been carried out to sea in a riptide, right? You were swimming in the ocean, and you got carried out in a riptide, and it was really dangerous. And you found a way to grab onto a log that seemed like, a floating log seemed like your deliverance. This book is about the moment deliverance slips away. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, of course, as you guys know, I don't need to tell you this, the United States and and the former Soviet Union, uh, as this Cold War superpowers developed a thermonuclear arsenal that could end life on earth and things were getting very, very dangerous in the 1980s. They were very dangerous throughout the Cold War, the Missile Crisis, of course, I'm a historian, but they were getting dangerous again in the 1980s and through a remarkable series of events in the late 1980s, thanks in part to Mikhail Gorbachev, the last leader of the Soviet Union, President Ronald Reagan, the brave protesters on the streets of Central and Eastern Europe, a series of unbelievable accidental events that brought on the Berlin Wall. We were delivered from that conflict. We got to this moment of peace and cooperation, indeed remarkable cooperation in deconstructing strategic nuclear arsenal with Russia. It was the moment of greatest nuclear cooperation since the dawn of the atomic age. And somehow we let that deliverance slip away. And my book is about how that happened. And there is agency on both sides, but it is still a deeply sad story because Cold Wars are not short-lived affairs and thaws are precious. And in looking at this as a serious historian in a detailed way for many years, I concluded that neither side made the best use of the thaw in the 1990s. Now that precious moment is gone. So that's kind of the big emotional picture about the book. Do you want me to walk through some of the details of the specific arguments?
0: Absolutely. That was really a wonderful, wonderful place to start. But I think especially for our readers to kind of yeah. unpack some of the details would, is also wonderful. But that was that was fantastic.
2: Good, yeah. So as I said, that helped me. I learned that from the screen. I realize that makes sense because now you're, you're going to understand why I'm going to overwhelm you with all these details about the origins of NATO expansion, right?
0: And I think so, our listeners love to be overwhelmed by these details. So you, okay, you right audience.
2: All right, we're going to do a special seven-hour episode today, right? Now, <laughs> having just written you know a book, I can of course talk until people lose the will to live. So happy to do that. Okay. So my argument is that the story of the fight between Washington and Moscow over NATO expansion is crucial to understanding where we are today. When you go back to the history of the 1990s, the decade after the Cold War, it's a crazy decade, right? The Soviet empire collapses. There's a host of new Eurasian countries. There's dissidents rising from prisons to the presidency. There's all kinds of doors opening for market economies, for neoliberalism, for democratization. But there's all kinds of really frightening development in terms of ethnic cleansing, authoritarianism. The nineties are just insane in terms of history. And I think of them as as an unruly decade. And so in order to talk about the nineties you need a story to follow. You need to narrativize the nineties. And so the story that I decide to follow is the fight between Moscow and Washington over NATO expansion. And I look in particular at three stages. I, I refer to these in the book as ratchet turns. Now the reason I call them ratchet turns is a ratchet that turns in one direction only. So when the ratchet is turned, you you foreclose other options. So I looked at the history of NATO expansion in terms of these three ratchet turns. One happens under former President George H.W. Bush and two happen under President Bill Clinton. And uh, these all happen in this ordering moment at the end of the Cold War, which is a time when dramatic changes were possible. In other words, an ordering moment is a time when there's a lot of timelines to the future that are possible. And these ratchet turns foreclose certain options and get us onto the timeline we're on now. So the first ratchet turn happens under President George H.W. Bush because he's on duty when the wall comes down. And so there's these big questions about, well, if the Cold War order is crumbling, what next, right? And as we know, there's a lot of controversy about this and we can get into that, you know, whether there is a promise or not. But um, basically just talking about the book overall, the important thing is that George H.W. Bush makes the decision that post-cold War transatlantic security should have high levels of continuity with Cold War security. In other words, uh, the United States and Europeans should not only retain NATO, but also retain NATO's right to expand eastward. That is a key point. And the, that is actually codified in writing in the final settlement that reunified Germany, uh, where it is written down that NATO can extend beyond the old Cold War or 1989 line. So that's the first ratchet turn, because there are a lot of other possibilities people are tossing around back then. The West German foreign minister was talking about a new pan-European organization. There were dissidents talking about... Uh, dissolving the borders of Central and Eastern Europe and turning all Central and Eastern Europe into a permanently demilitarized and denuclearized zone. Now that you can say that would have been crazy, but that would have been a new world order, right? Instead, what happens is the Bush administration working closely with um, Chancellor Helmut Kohl of West Germany perpetuates a lot of the Cold War structures of transatlantic security, even as the Bush administration is labeling it a new world order. I don't think it was a new world order. I think it was a lot of continuity, which makes sense, right? If you're Washington in 1989, you you feel like you've just won the Cold War. So why change, right? So that's the first ratchet turn, which means all these other alternatives like a whole new pan-European structure or demilitarizing Europe, those options are now foreclosed. So your future is now going to remain with a NATO that can expand. There was even a variant, which is with a NATO that didn't move one inch eastward, which is what Baker had briefly hypothetically proposed to Gorbachev. He, you know that was only hypothetical but that's the nexus of this controversy that, that perpetuates to this day uh, that would have been a different scenario where nato stayed where it was but that's not what you get you get the ratchet turn that retains nato and its ability to expand right second bush is kicked out of office by the american voters so now it's up to clinton to decide how to expand nato and this is really the heart of my book my book is not an anti-nato expansion book I think NATO expansion was a reasonable response to these geopolitical developments and to the pressures of the time. The Central and Eastern Europeans wanted into it. They had become free democratic sovereign states. They had the right to pick their own alliances. Uh, NATO expansion had happened in the past, so it wasn't unprecedented. So in short, NATO expansion was neither unreasonable nor unprecedented. The problem was how it happened because there's a two more ratchet turns. In the second ratchet turn, the Clinton administration decides to move forward in a um, diffuse, indirect manner of expanding NATO. Because as Clinton says at the time, we don't want to immediately draw a new line across Europe. We just finished getting rid of the Cold War line. So why draw a new line? right? Also, and Clinton says this repeatedly, we need to pay attention not just to Central and Eastern Europe, but also to the post-Soviet states. They're getting almost completely ignored. And in particular, this is Clinton, Ukraine is the linchpin of Europe. We can't just leave Ukraine in the lurch. And it's obvious you can't immediately put post-Soviet states in NATO. So if you have this uh, diffuse manner of expansion that modulates expansion, the partnership, where you allow a wide array of states to have an affiliation, and then within that structure gradually bring some on board, that actually provides a birth for Ukraine and for post-Soviet states. And uh, under the leadership of Secretary of Defense, Les Aspen, but more importantly, Secretary of Defense, Bill Perry, and under the leadership of uh, General John Chalish Kashvili, the Partnership for Peace becomes policy. And I'll be interested to hear from Jim actually, because Jim is actually there on the ground for a lot of this. And Jim gave me an interview, which was really very helpful for me for my book. This actually starts working better than anyone thought. Clinton says this is this is turning into a bigger deal than we ever imagined. Now, the Partnership for Peace is not as attractive as NATO expansion, right? It's not sexy like NATO expansion. Nobody loves the partnership. The Poles, you know, they really, when they hear about it, they hate it at first because they want to be in NATO. The Russians don't really like it. Uh, Nobody really likes it. But this is the important thing. They're all willing to live with it. Uh, The Poles join, the Russians join, it starts working and it actually squares that circle of somehow being responsive to Central and Eastern European demands to get into NATO while also managing frictions with Moscow. So that's the second ratchet turn, which is to move forward that way. But then for a host of reasons that I describe in my book, Clinton actually executes a third ratchet turn. He switches to the mode of NATO expansion that we actually have today, which is the all or nothing expansion, right? get article five or you get nothing and you do it to a very small number of countries, not to a big diffuse number of countries. In other words, you draw a new line across Europe and that I think is a problem because now you know you can't Ukraine can't be given article 5 in the 90s that's not realistic. you leave Ukraine in the lurch. you're maximizing friction with Moscow uh, you you know you're you're setting up this system where you have to either make someone a full partner or not immediately one of the virtues of partnership for peace had been that it put NATO expansion at the end rather than at the beginning of the process. And so what's really crucial for me is that shift in US thinking. And so that's where the title of the book comes from. But the title of the book is of course not one inch, which most people will know is that famous line from Baker to Gorbachev uh, as part of the negotiations over German unification. Hey, Mikhail, you let your half of Germany go And we, the United States, we move NATO not one inch eastward. But what became apparent to me is that over the course of the 90s, this unruly decade, that meaning shifts 180 degrees to not one inch needs to be off limits to NATO, to a maximalist position. And that is really the problem. And now I don't believe in monocausality. So NATO expansion is not the only thing that derails U.S.-Russian relations, But it does add to the burdens of the nascent Russian democracy when it most needs friends. And at a time when Russia and Yeltsin are making a series of tragic self-harming choices, most notably the Chechnya invasion of 1994. And so basically by about late 94 or 95, because of Yeltsin's decision to invade Chechnya, that causes the Central and Eastern Europeans to say, look, we need NATO. This is this is just like the old Soviet Union. They're going to use force. They're going to invade people. Uh, Yeltsin's decision to invade Chechnya, the increased pressure from Central and Eastern Europeans, which is understandable. Meanwhile, in the U.S., the midterm congressional elections of 1994, the Republican Party wins based on the contract with America that calls for quicker Article 5 expansion. Uh, Clinton wants to be reelected, so he needs to pay attention to that. Clinton starts to change his mind. And then on top of that, Ukraine also denuclearizes. So Ukraine becomes less of a priority. Uh, Ukraine had, of course, been born nuclear. It had been born the third biggest nuclear power in the world. And uh, suddenly it was denuclearizing. So suddenly giving it a birth meant less. So you switch to Article 5 mode of expansion, and then that's where you get to the problem. So sorry for the long-winded summary, but I did warn you. (laughs)
0: That was amazing. I can, I, I don't know if we can restrain Jim from having a million questions. This is exactly, I think his cup of tea. I don't know if you want to go Jim first. I don't even know what direction to go in. Do you want, do you want first question? Uh, you know, it's
1: been, it's just great listening to that because I just went back into this time travel <laughs> 90s and I, and I just, uh, you know, um, gosh, uh, it's not like even i have a question i just want to add some detail to
2: this you do <laughs>
1: i mean it's uh um you know a pfp it, it was it, it was a bit of a waiting room you know and the polls called it that we used to call uh yeah, the po- the polls came and said, you know, uh, you're not going to let us into NATO right away because the polls were the ones pressing, pushing on the door early on. And and uh, the alliance wasn't sure what it wanted to do. There are a lot of the older allies did not want to enlarge NATO. They, they didn't want Poland in. They didn't know where, you know, there was a lot of um, and, and also the Clinton administration that they weren't when they came into office, they didn't come in with this as a priority at all. Uh, And so, um, and of course, we have the Balkan Wars were beginning. And uh, like you said, it was a crazy, crazy time. And so in a lot of ways, the Partnership for Peace was buying us time to, at a minimum, get these nations ready to be uh, members of the alliance. You know, that's where Dr. Perry came up with his four, the four or five Perry principles that, that he needed to have uh, these PFP nations be able to have a market economy, civilian control, military, good relations with neighbors. You know, there was the mantra. And PFP gave us an opportunity to say, look, you're not going to have Article 5 with PFP. Uh, but Dr. Krusel, our deputy assistant secretary who later died in, um, in, in the Balkans uh, when he was there negotiating with Holbrook, he used to say, he said this to the polls, he says, look, PFP is okay if you're go- you're going to be doing so much in PFP it's going to be if you look like a duck and you walk like a duck and you quack like a duck, the Russians are going to assume you're a duck, even though you're not in NATO and you don't have Article 5. That's going to be almost like that. I'm not sure if the polls ever bought that, but um, but it was this thing where the polls said, you know, you're not going to let us in. Uh, you're going to keep us on the front porch. He goes, NATO is a big mansion and you guys are inside the big mansion and you're eating. Uh, and you're enjoying yourselves and all of us former Warsaw Pact, we're on the front porch and we're trying to get in and you're just not going to let us in. They were very impatient, but they weren't ready also. And, um, and and I'll just one last thing and I, and I'll get off the microphone but, you know, there was a real concern um, that uh, uh that that these guys were not ready enough and that it would cause us problems on the hill because the congress is going to expect because rand had done the study that congress had read and said, well, look, if we're going to bring these guys in, we're going to have to get them up to snuff, and it's going to cost the American taxpayers X to do that. Uh, And it was in the billions. I mean, it was a wrong-headed study. Sorry, Rand, I love you guys, but this was, you missed the point about the cost of enlargement. But there was this, uh, believe it or not, a domestic problem where I think it was uh, Senator Warner and some others were causing trouble on the Hill saying, maybe we don't want to do this. So, um, so we had to have some time to get the Congress understanding better, uh, to get the nations themselves ready, both in terms of military capabilities, but also on the civilian side. Uh, and finally, there was uh, a very big concern within the State Department uh, that we not do something that would provoke the Russians. Uh, bringing everybody in, you know, the so-called Big Bang—it was called the Big Bang. Uh, Ron Asmus called it that uh, later on. But this idea that we bring everybody in at once. Uh, you know, we said no. Strobe Talbot particularly, and I think he was the Deputy Secretary of State at the time, he was trying to say we cannot do things through PFP or through enlargement that's going to uh, to provoke the Russians right now. We're trying to help them. We want to pull them along as well. Uh, and so that's one of the reasons that it was so slow. You know, the first round was only three countries, and they were barely ready, as they will probably admit, uh, and, uh, and so off we went. Um, uh, into into enlargement, but PFP bought us time, it bought us space, it bought us opportunities to try to figure out just what this was, because at the end of the day, and I'll stop here, sorry, but at the end of the day, we had never done any of this before. We were surprised by it, like the wall had fallen, uh, and a lot of the uh, the heavy hitters who in the administration, the Clinton administration, were all consumed by the Balkans. So PFP and Enlargement and, and was really left up to a small group of us, junior officers, <laughs> to try to breathe life into it. And to us, it was a time to be really creative. And we did all these things uh, to try to bring along these nations and help them ease out of the Warsaw Pact and become a military and to become a, have a defense organization and a nation that looks more like what you would see around the table in Brussels. And so that's what we did. And, and PFP bought us time and gave us a process to do that.
2: So I'd like to um, say three things in response to those excellent remarks by Jim, if that's okay, Andrea. Yes, please. Okay, all right, so um, so the first is that you've um, just made uh, one of the key points in my book, which is that NATO expansion was not one thing. There were many ways to expand NATO expansion. Nothing like that had really been done before. I mean, yes, NATO itself had expanded before, but always in the Cold War context, right? So you, this was a moment of experimentation, and there – There were multiple answers to the question, how do we expand NATO? I think that for too long, the discussion about NATO expansion has just been binary, right? People say either NATO expansion was good or NATO expansion was bad, and and then they yell at each other, right? And I think we need to add a lot more nuance to the discussion because there was a spectrum of possibilities for NATO expansion. And there were a lot of different ways to have expanded it. And and as you said, there was a lot of room for experimentation. So I think that we need to make make the discussion just much more nuanced, that there are a bunch of different ways to expand NATO. Uh, Secondly, as you've rightly said, the big advantage, I think, of the Partnership for Peace was that it allowed management of contingency, right? And there was a whole lot of contingency going on in the 1990s, right? I, as a historian, I'm always interested in the interplay between structure and contingency or agency. And my students won't be surprised about what I'm going to say because I've already heard it from me a bunch of times. I um, subscribe very much to a, a theory advanced in evolutionary biology by uh, Stephen Jay Gould, among others. But I like Stephen Jay Gould's formulation and his formulation is as follows. He said, when I, Stephen Jay Gould, as an evolutionary biologist, look at the fossil record, I do not actually see a little evolution one day and a little evolution another day, and then a little more evolution. In other words, I do not actually see gradualism. Uh, What I see is long periods of relative stasis or equilibrium where the changes are relatively small scale, punctuated by dramatic moments of change. Such as most famously, when a massive asteroid hits the Earth, and this asteroid is so massive that the cloud of debris it throws into the atmosphere is so dense that it cools the surface of the Earth below that at which the dinosaurs can survive. And so, in a very rapid period of time, in you know evolutionary terms, the dinosaurs die out in this in this punctuational moment. And that's a moment suddenly where all kinds of contingency and agency is important because now all of a sudden there's sort of multiple possible outcomes. And what happens then is that the mammals actually take advantage of the fact that the dinosaurs aren't eating them to become the dominant species. And then you get a new period of stasis or equilibrium. And I like that theory very much because I think that, that applies to history and politics as well, that you have these periods of stasis, which was much of the Cold War, for example. And then you have these dramatic punctuational events, right, which I describe in my book, the wall coming down, the Soviet Union collapsing 30 years ago uh, this month. And that's a time when there are multiple timelines to the future possible. And you have a lot of contingency, and because of that, because the '90s were this punctuational moment, I think the management of contingency was a you know very important uh, priority, and the Partnership for Peace uh, really you know pr- prioritized that. And then a uh, third, and finally, the Partnership for Peace just in and of itself had five major advantages. Uh, so first of all, it addressed complaints uh, by civilian and military leaders in the Department of Defense that politicians were treating NATO too much as just a club to join, right? It's a military alliance, right? You actually have to have people who are ready to join it, right? You can't just like let people in the club and hand them a drink, right? I mean, they're, you know, they have to be interoperable. I mean, I'm not telling you guys anything you don't know. Uh, So first it addressed that problem that, you know, it was not just a club. It gave time to develop interoperability. Second, the Partnership for Peace, as its name implies, could serve as a response to the tragic disintegration of Yugoslavia that was going on at the time. It could help, and, and indeed did help, to address those issues there. Third, the Partnership for Peace gave time to deepen relations with Central and Eastern Europe without immediately drawing a new front line across Europe. Right. I mean, you know, it's clearly put this way. Let's be real. It's clear that Poland is going to get in NATO. It's clear that Hungary, the Czech Republic are going to get in NATO. But there's ways to do that. Again, it's about how it happens. And it's one thing to have a diffuse partnership where you're evaluating countries gradually versus saying, no, we're just going to draw a new article five line. Forget it, because that maximizes your friction with Moscow. And the problem is that the, there is a um, cost per inch to expansion. So in other words, the closer you move to Moscow, the greater the cost per inch of expansion, right? It's one thing to expand to Spain, right? It's another thing to expand to the Baltics, right? And so the partnership was cognizant that the cost per inch went up the closer you got to Moscow. Again, going back to the advantages, the partnership, fourth, provided a birth for Ukraine, which, as we've been discussing and as we see today in the news, was hugely important. Ukraine was not gonna be in NATO in the mid 1990s, although people did talk about that too, which shocked me, but it could be and was in the partnership. And then uh, lastly, as I think I've already mentioned, the partnership allowed Washington to put actual article five extension at the end rather than at the beginning of this process, right? And so for all those reasons, I think that it was a really good way to expand NATO. Even the fact that, as you said, Jim, the relationship between the partnership and actual membership was vague, that was actually a useful ambiguity for the United States. right? Because if you know if things got really tense with Russia, you could say, oh, we're gonna speed it up. But if countries were not behaving properly, you could say, oh, we need to slow it down, right? It was, I think, a really, really smart policy. But then it got pushed aside. And so now we're in this situation where it's all article five or nothing you know, wouldn't it be nice if we now had another option for Ukraine other than putting it in Article 5 NATO status or nothing? Like, wouldn't it be nice if we had some alternatives or more ability to manage contingency? But we don't. So um, sadly, you know, when we get out of this punctuational moment, when we actually exit it in the real world, right, not hypothetically speaking in the past, we're on the timeline we're on now. Right, where we're expanding NATO in a way that maximizes ag- friction with Moscow limits our ability to manage contingency and leaves Ukraine in the lurch. Okay.
0: So, uh, Jim and I are fighting vigorously to see who is going to ask the next question, and you're I not, I want
1: to you you're you're up you're up I I I I surrender I, I surrender. <laughs> I surrender. <laughs>
0: Um, and we can bounce between the, I, I want to pull us up to the present, but I'm, we can bounce back and forth between discussing this history sure. and kind of where we are now. But I, I'm your um, analogy to evolutionary biology is such a fascinating one in this notion of um, punctu- a punctuational moment. Are we in one now? I mean, you can obviously see the echoes with so many of the things that you've talked about um, behind the present moment, use you know I've been following statements from the Kremlin and other things where they have referenced this notion from their view that there was a promise that was made, um, and use that to justify why now they're pushing for more formal security guarantees, right? So that the Kremlin very much is talking about this moment using military force to force a conversation on some of these core issues on Ukraine and wanting to have these security guarantees that say both you know Ukraine will not have a role in NATO and that we can't have NATO infrastructure in Ukraine. So is this a I mean as you think about that I guess it's two questions. Do you think that we're in a punctuational moment and two just kind of what does your research how does your research help us understand this moment that we're in now?
2: Yeah. Thanks. So, really easy question. Thanks, there, Andrea. Um, Yeah. So, I'll wait a punctuational moment now. I've been asking myself that uh, quite a bit. I, uh, if if you'd asked me that question two months ago, I would have clearly said no. I think we're in a period of stasis for now, and the next punctuational moment on on the timeline, in as much as you can predict them, and you can't, would be the post-Putin moment, whenever that is. So if you'd asked me two months ago, I would say we're in a period of stasis and the next punctuational moment with the post-Putin moment. So we should we should prepare for that, right? We should be prepared to have some creative policy making when that punctuational moment comes, because as as I said before, you know, cold wars are not short-lived affairs. So thaws are really precious. We shouldn't make the mistake of the 90s and thinking, oh, this thaw is going to last forever, right? We need to understand how precious these moments are. Uh, Given where we are today, however, if the biggest invasion since World War II takes place in Ukraine. That would be a punctuational moment, and I think the um, I think the West, I think European policy, European and American policymakers, I think they haven't quite woken up yet to the to the just how profound the consequences consequences would be if Russia invades Ukraine. Uh, a lot of the American and Western foreign policy policy establishment is understandably. Fixing its gaze into the long distance, the long-term competition with China, right? And I think we may be missing the immediate confrontation, short-term that's about to happen. And if you know Russia really does dismantle Ukraine, that will have, I think, profound knock-on consequences. I mean, for starters, there are you know NATO is not formally present there, but NATO member states have people in Ukraine. Uh, there's you know you, there's Article Five borders in the area? Uh, what are we going to do if something you know, spills over and turns into an Article Five incursion? Uh, are we, if there is an invasion, are we going to be talking about massive return of American troops to Europe? I mean, when you look at this historically, the numbers of Americans who served in Europe historically is huge, something like 15 million Americans served in divided Germany. We really may have a big shift back to much more of a Cold War footing as a consequence of what's about to happen. That would then be a punctuational moment. So I think a lot depends on what happens on the Russian-Ukrainian border. And I'm deeply worried about the fact that this is happening, I think not coincidentally, on the 30th anniversary of Soviet collapse. I think that's also being underestimated as a driving factor in what Putin is doing. Uh, From everything I know of Putin historically, of course, he was, you know, I'm a, uh, among other things, I've worked a great deal in the Stasi or East German secret police archive. And uh, Putin, of course, came up through the ranks as a KGB officer serving in East Germany. So he figures in, you know, the history of the German collapse as well. He was absolutely horrified by what he saw on the ground in East Germany. He is, as far as I can tell, very conscious of things like birthdays and anniversaries. For um, example, I mean, obviously, I don't have any inside information, but it's notable that the Russian human rights activist and journalist Anna Polkovskaya is murdered on October 7th. October 7th is Putin's birthday. Uh, Again, I don't have any hard evidence on this, but you you hear these rumors and you see policymakers talking about how Putin likes birthday presents of that kind. And then when you look at uh, the election hacking in America in the year 2016, that was the 25th anniversary of Soviet collapse. So here we are on the edge of the 30th anniversary of Soviet collapse. Now, I don't think he's ever going to say this in public, right? It's a very painful anniversary for him, right? But that's the end of the state that he served as a loyal KGB agent. That's the end of the state into which he was born. That's the end of the state that defeated Nazi Germany, right? And that anniversary is coming up on December 25th. So at a minimum, at a minimum, he seems poised to observe that anniversary by having a massive army crouched to to attack on the border of Ukraine, like at a minimum, if not worse. Right. And then something may then follow in January and February. And, you know, I mean, Putin said a lot of things like I'm not the first person to quote this, that, you know, the greatest geopolitical catastrophe of the 20th century was the collapse of the Soviet Union. Now, think about that for a minute. There's a lot of competition for that title. Right greatest geopolitical catastrophe of the 20th century. And for him, it's the collapse of the Soviet Union. And the 30th anniversary of that is coming up, and you're not going to do anything? So I'm worried we may, I'm worried we may be on the verge of a punctuational moment, and I hope not, because I think it could be punctuational in a very, very negative sense. And then the other question is, um, how does my research shed on this? Yeah, so I think in all of the ways that I've just been describing, because if you understand this, the weight of history, and I believe very firmly this weighs heavily on Putin and on his advisors, then you you start to understand the significance this takes on. And I haven't even gotten into the whole long history of between Russia and Ukraine, right? My co-author Serhiy Plokhii, an excellent historian of Ukraine. If you, I recommend strongly all of Serhiy Plokhii's books, and there are many of them to your listeners. I also recommend my friend Vlad Zubak's book, *The Collapse*, which looks at. The collapse of the Soviet Union from the inside, so it's largely the domestic politics of Soviet collapse 30 years ago. Uh, that all I think it's Mipa's way. I think it's essential to understand this history to understand what's motivating Putin today. And so, I'll, I, uh, I it, it makes me I mean it makes me sad as a citizen of this world that my research is this relevant, right? But but this, these are the issues that are motivating Putin. I mean, I've just published a book called Not One Inch, right? And I look up in the newspaper, and the Russian foreign minister is basically saying our price in russia for not dismantling ukraine is essentially a not one more inch of nato expansion pact right i mean on one level as an author i'm glad to be relevant but as a you know as a, as a thinking citizen who wants to live in a peaceful world where we solve problems peacefully and without violence that that makes me deeply worried
1: wow uh, andrea you keep going i'm 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 still processing
0: <laughs> well i mean I, and so i mean i think you you've you referenced your essay with sergei Ploki and that, that you one that you wrote in foreign affairs a little while ago before this podcast i was just went back to read it and i can i'm going to just read a quote for out of that piece and then maybe just have you reflect on it in that, because it's so relevant so you wrote in that essay Over the past quarter century, nearly all major efforts at establishing a durable post-Cold War order on the Eurasian continent have foundered on the shoals of Ukraine. For it is in Ukraine that the disconnect between triumphalist end of history delusions and the ongoing realities of great power competition can be seen in its starkest form. I mean, it's just such a powerful statement, right? And you, you wrote that, I think it was the context of the um, impeachment trials, but it I mean, it just, it doesn't stop being relevant. And I, I, you know, given your work again, I just, it's a very open-ended question, but I wonder if you just kind of want to talk about that realization and, and you know, how you've thought about it as a historian.
2: Sure, this was one of the biggest surprises in my research. and And as an aside, as a researcher, that's there's always the best moments when you, you, you sort of think you know what you're looking for and the evidence just sort of leaps off the page. It kind of like grabs you by the arm, it kind of shakes you. It's like, no, no, this is what's really going on. You kind of realize, wow, I, I, I miss this because as I got into my research, I realized just how central the future of Ukraine was to all of the key players in the 1990s. Uh, President Clinton in particular repeatedly said um, we're, I'm paraphrasing, but the exact quotations are in the book, repeatedly said things like, Ukraine is the linchpin of Europe. And this is 1994. And he says, you know, things like, we, we just can't ignore these post-Soviet states, and we particularly can't ignore Ukraine. Now, one of the reasons he's saying that, of course, is, as I've already mentioned, Ukraine was born nuclear. When you're born the third biggest nuclear power in the world, y- you get a lot of attention. And so there was this clear sense that we need to define a birth for Ukraine. And you, know, you read that from the point of view of 2021 and think, wouldn't it have been nice if that had worked out, right? And so that was really one of my surprises. And that was part of the reason uh, why I reached out to my friend, Serhii Plohi, is because I gradually began to realize just how central Ukraine was to my story. And I needed to work with him to understand it even better. And that's why that's what that earlier foreign affairs article came out. So I realized, wait a minute, I'm going to need to understand how Ukraine was denuclearized and how that relates to NATO expansion, because it is not possible to understand the story of NATO expansion without understanding the role of Ukraine, period. So I then had to go down a whole different research track and look at People like, you know, Steve Pfeiffer, who did a really great job denuclearizing Ukraine, look at what Strobe Talbot was doing over there, because I realized for them, this was all of a piece, right? And so they were very much trying to make sure that there was only one nuclear successor state to the Soviet Union, and they succeeded. But the paradox is then when they succeeded, when Ukraine agrees to denuclearize in exchange for financial aid because, of, you know, its economy is in freefall, that then means Ukraine becomes a lower priority. Right. So suddenly this focus on providing a birth for Ukraine, it starts to slip. And I think that that's really, really unfortunate because that was a, you know, as I said, that would have helped us have more options for today. The other related story that turned out to be hugely important is the story of uh, Pentagon cooperation with Moscow to dismantle or destroy or relocate back to Russia, large portions of the Soviet nuclear arsenal. Um, which had ended up outside of Russia. So in other words, the Soviet nuclear arsenal of the Soviet Union was not just in Russia, of course, it was in what is now Russia, Ukraine, Belarus, and Kazakhstan. So when the Soviet Union collapsed 30 years ago, suddenly you have the Soviet arsenal that used to be in one place, suddenly you have it in four states. And another big shock for me, this is another great moment when your research kind of slaps you in the face and you're like, whoa, I didn't know this was going on, was the 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 intense debate inside the George H.W. Bush administration about what to do about that. And uh, on the one hand, you had Secretary of State James Baker who said, oh my god, the Soviet Union is falling apart. This is terrible. It's Yugoslavia with nukes. We must drop everything to ensure that there is only one nuclear successor state to the Soviet Union. There must only be one. Mr. President, there is no other issue more deserving of your attention. And on the other hand, you had people like Brent Scowcroft and Dick Cheney saying, You know, maybe not such a bad idea if there's four weak nuclear powers instead of one big strong one. And frankly, you know, I mean, there's multiple nuclear powers in the world already. And I don't think Belarus and Kazakhstan are going to launch nuclear war against the United States. So maybe it's better if there's four nuclear powers. And so you had this really fierce debate over what's better. And then you even had a debate over whether Washington should be... um, trying, in James Baker's words, to preserve the center of the Soviet Union because of these nuclear issues? I have handwritten notes from James Baker where he just writes preserve center and underlines it multiple times. Should we preserve the center of the Soviet Union? Or or Dick Cheney saying the Soviet Union is collapsing. We should declare, you know, all the Soviet states are allies right now. We should send diplomatic missions yesterday. We should hasten the collapse of the Soviet Union. So you have this really active fight between Baker and Cheney over is it better or worse if the Soviet Union fractures? And Baker eventually wins all those fights, right? Baker says, you know, we're going to try to preserve the center. We're going to try to have just one nuclear successor state, and it's going to be Russia. And we're going to work closely with them to make that happen. Um, and that then leads to this pressure on Ukraine to denuclearize. But that then has consequences for the NATO story as well. And it also, and this is the last thing I'll say, it, it also informs what Bill Perry is doing, because Bill Perry is putting together the partnership for peace because he wants to keep that nuclear cooperation going, right? And when it's clear that Clinton is shifting to this more aggressive mode of expansion, Bill Perry goes in and says, President Clinton, don't do it. I, I understand the Central and Eastern Europeans want to join NATO. I get it. I respect them. I have huge respect for people like Lech Valenza and Václav Havel who overthrew Soviet control. But I'm the Secretary of Defense of the United States of America. My job is to make the United States safer, and I'm doing a great job because following what Baker did, I'm currently working directly with Moscow to make sure that all the former Soviet arsenal is back in Russia and that we destroy as much of it as possible. This is the greatest breakthrough in disarmament since the dawn of the nuclear age. Anything you do to irritate the Russians at this point, Mr. President, is actually not in the interest of the U.S. government, so don't do this. Clinton goes ahead anyway, switches to all or nothing expansion, and Perry comes this close to resigning. And in his memoirs later said, you know, I wish I had resigned because the consequences of premature expansion, not expansion, but the consequences of premature expansion were even worse in the nuclear realm than I could possibly have imagined. So I wish I had resigned.
1: Wow. Well, you know, I didn't I didn't know that about Dr. Perry. Um, You know, I'm just I'm trying to relate what you were saying to what I saw. Uh, and just a couple of points one is of course that the nuclear part about ukraine was so called loose nukes as it was called at the time loose nukes loose scientists there was a this great fear of proliferation coming from a disintegrating soviet union uh, and of, of, you know the fear that some of these warheads or the scientists will get out of control uh and and we were of course uh, paying money to to build secure facilities uh in the, in the former Soviet Union other places to store not just uh you know some of the nuclear weapons before they were destroyed but also um a lot of the uh, nuclear power uh reactors that were on soviet subs up in the northern fleet that had you know the soviet navy was just falling by the wayside it was uh, you know it was uh, was rotting away. And so the fear was that we had to get those cores out and they had to be stored somewhere under lock and key. We got to remember the Russians were absolutely broke. so um, And so it was Ash Carter working with Dr. Perry who really took that on during the Clinton administration. And so when, as I'm thinking about it, you know, a lot of the PFP and a lot of the effort towards looking at uh, candidates to come into NATO and trying to figure out when, Ukraine never really figured that much in in that. And, And I say that because in the Pentagon at least, the Europe office where I was, we were given a lot of money to fund these programs and the money went to Uh, the the Czechs and it went to uh, Hungarians and uh, went to the Poles and this type of thing. And across the office, I mean, across the um, hallway from us was Russia, Ukraine, Eurasia, Catherine Kelleher as the DASD. uh, And she used to fight with me a lot. I was the money guy. I wasn't the DASD at the time, of course, Uh, uh, Joe Krusel was. uh, But she used to seek me out to berate me (laughs) about not giving her enough money. (laughs) for Ukraine and for Russia. And the feeling was, well, well, screw it, Ukraine and Russia, this money needs to go to these other countries in, um, in Central and Eastern Europe that are good candidates and we wanna bring them in. But Ukraine was being talked about a lot, but mainly in terms of this loose nukes. And your point about uh, Ukraine being a lower priority, yeah, I think that did happen. Once, once they were able to get the, the nukes out of Ukraine, there was no pressure that I saw that I felt. Okay, now it's time to bring Ukraine into NATO. They, you know, so when we had the the first uh, three that came in in 1999, uh, you know, Poland, Hungary, Czech Republic. They were the most ready. And then after that, you had the Big Bang. You had other nations coming in. And Ukraine never really – What the most that we did for Ukraine, we did at NATO uh, when we had the the NATO-Ukraine Commission, the NUC, the so-called NUC, which is still around. So we started – we really redoubled our bilateral efforts to help Ukraine. NATO started its effort to do the NUC. Uh, but you know, um, it, it, there was not a lot of, except for a small group, there was not a lot of pressure to bring them into NATO. Uh, even at the at the um, Romania summit, Bucharest summit, uh, where they were, they in Georgia were told that you will be in NATO in the communiqué. Really, that was as close as we ever got. Uh, uh, you know, they were always on a separate track. They were always unique. Uh, and um, and there wasn't really a big press at all to bring them into NATO, particularly after we secured the nukes.
2: Yeah, and that goes back to why the PFP is is so important, because as you rightly say, Jim, Ukraine is always separate, right? I mean, it has you know it's a it's a it's a giant country at the time that it became independent in 1991. It had over 50 million citizens, so that's on the scale of Britain or France. We have to remember it's a big democracy. I mean, obviously, Ukraine has corruption and so forth, but it has largely free elections. Right. And it is a country that has just nearly limitless cultural, political and historical ties with Russia, not to mention a massive land border. So. Uh, obviously, as you said, you know the, the the what surprised me is just how much discussion there was of putting Ukraine in NATO, but it almost always came to this conclusion of that's too difficult, which is why it's so important to have the Partnership for Peace as an alternative, right? It's important
1: uh, only because of the nukes. That, that that. But once the nukes are secured, you know, only the Ukraine. Uh, lobby, you know, a tiny group push that just fell off the table.
2: Which is too bad, because as we're seeing today, actually, as President Clinton said, Ukraine really is a linchpin to security in Europe because of its importance to Russia. And, you know, we had an awareness of that with Partnership for Peace, in part that was enforced on us by the fact that Ukraine was briefly the world's third biggest nuclear power, but then as you rightly said, Jim, when the nukes go away, the awareness of that issue goes away. But it would have been in our longer-term issue, you know, interest to keep that, to keep that in focus. So and instead you get um you get what's known as SIBROD. That was an interesting ac- acronym I learned. S-I-B-R-O-D, SIBROD. SIBROD stands for small is beautiful, robust open door, right? So instead of this large, diffuse manner of a partnership where you can have a birth for places like Ukraine, you're actually going to have the exact opposite, which is you're going to expand to the smallest possible number, uh, which is Poland, Hungary, and the Czech Republic, in order to show that NATO expansion will keep going. In other words, um, this comes back to this issue, NATO expansion wasn't just one thing, right? Once it was clear that you were gonna switch, the Partnership for Peace was being sidelined, uh, that you're just gonna do article five or nothing, all or nothing. The Brits, as I think I was mentioning, the Brits weighed in and said, okay, if we're gonna do that, then let's just have one round of NATO expansion. Let's do one round of post-cold war NATO expansion and be done. Let's figure out who's most ready and put all those countries in and that's it. Then we're closing the door. And the Americans came back very strongly, the State Department in particular, and Strobe Talbot in particular, came back and said, no, 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 we are doing the opposite. Small is beautiful, robust open door. We're intentionally only going to give Article 5 to the smallest possible number of countries and only half of what used to be Czechoslovakia, because we want to make abundantly clear that there will be more rounds of NATO expansion. And uh, we don't want to keep it to one round. In other words, there is no one way to expand NATO. There's a series of choices. And Talbot in particular, and this was another surprise. This is another time when the, my, my research material slapped me in the face. Talbot, as early as the, you know, I, I want to say, I think the earliest citation I found on this was 95, said NATO expansion will not end unless or until we've put the Baltics in NATO. That was very, very clear for Talbot. That became known internally as the Talbot principle. And so if that's, if you've defined that as your goal, then of course you have to set NATO expansion up as a multi-round thing, right, to get there. Because it's going to be, you know, hard to just go from the Cold War to the Baltics or NATO. So again, there were all these different ways to expand NATO. And we eventually in the United States, partly I think out of hubris, because, you know, we were, you know, we were in the unipolar moment, we got to this very aggressive variant. Now, again, I always have to qualify that by saying there's also Russian agency too, right? It really cannot be overstated how important the invasion of Chechnya was. Uh, it horrified people in the West. It convinced people that the new Russia was like the old Soviet Union. It uh, really started to derail a sense that there could be a cooperative security future. And that was a big, bad mistake on Yeltsin's part. Andrei Kozirov, the former foreign minister said, you know, we realized Chechnya was a bad mistake. There's also the dissent into corruption uh, inside Russia. There's also the use of violence against domestic political opponents in 1993. So, this isn't just, you know, there's agency on both sides, right? Um, it's, it's a story of the tragic interactions, which are cumulative between the US and Russia. And then, of course, by late 90s, you get even more um, confrontational issues such as Kosovo coming up. And then gradually, you get Putin rising through the ranks. And you know it all sort of comes to a head in 1990. There's sort of a collision between all of these things, right? Putin is becoming acting president, and you have the fight, you're fighting at the end of the year. But he's on his way up. You have the fighting in Kosovo. By now, you have President Clinton impeached for the Monica Lewinsky uh, affair. You the
1: Pristina,
2: um, and what what, 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 Jim?
1: You had the Pristina airport.
2: Uh, you had the Pristina airport incident and by the 90s you really you have you know uh, the Primakov loop where he turns his plane around in air it's really by 1990 you're getting to the end of the punctuational moment you're starting to see this future of confrontation once putin is in office now it's not as if the entire future is then mapped out from that but it, it's you know other options have by that point been foreclosed and so that is really you know really is kind of you know heartbreaking that's where we get at the end of this great moment of optimism at the end of the cold war
0: wow i feel like we could keep Talking for hours. Um, but I think you, I mean, really, you've kind of brought us up to where we are today. And it's clear that these legacies have you know, really significantly shaped the exact moment that we find ourselves in today. Um, I hope that we aren't in a punctuational moment, that we have That's a little a- bit more time to get to a post Putin era where we've been able to do a little bit more planning. Um, for what that pretend, you know, in the creative policymaking, like you said, to try to find some solutions, how will we resolve issues like Crimea, um, and other things. So um, this was really fantastic. Um, I again, just highly, highly recommend your book, not one inch more, um, I hope people will pick it up and read it. Um, because, you know, and, and obviously, when you wrote it, I don't think you could have anticipated how relevant no. it would have been. Um, today. So um, with that, I want to thank you for joining us um, and hopefully uh, we'll be able to continue this conversation and really look forward to your future work. um, Thank you. Follow it closely. Um, So thank you for taking the time and glad we could have, um, I guess, this unfortunately very timely conversation.
2: Yeah, no, thank you so much. Again, I think the work you do is hugely important. These topics are of of crucial significance to today's world. And the job you're doing, communicating them in an accessible manner, I think is really important. is only going to get even more important in the coming months. So thank you for the work you're doing with this podcast.
1: Well, thank you. And thanks thanks for for writing a book uh, that I hope uh, will be read by so many people because that was a decade that, uh, I don't think we realize it yet, but it was a decade full of drama and surprises. And I think your book's going to help pave the way for people to understand that.
2: Excellent. Thanks so much.